I'm Paul Irwin and welcome to the Pros.com podcast, where we discuss everything translation and interpreting related, including how to get new clients, areas of specialization, technical skills, software localization, machine translation, diversification, and more. Pros.com, helping freelance translators and interpreters succeed. This is episode 56. I'm Paul Irwin. Welcome. And today we're going to be talking about pricing and negotiation, a really interesting topic. And uh, well, I'm here with uh, Jason Willis-Lee, who's an expert in this area. He's got lots of uh, lots of experience, lots of uh, great ideas and pieces of advice that he can share with you on negotiation and pricing. So that's coming up in just a second. Check out training.pros.com. Find the course or workshop that's right for you and take your career as a translator or interpreter to the next level. Training.pros.com Jason Willis-Lee, www.jasonwillis.lee.com graduated in physiology after training as a doctor for over three years at Bristol Medical School, including one year's full hospital training. He worked briefly as a clinical research associate before switching into applied linguistics and earning a postgraduate diploma in translating and interpreting from the University of Bath. He now lives and works full-time in Madrid as a self-employed medical and pharmaceutical translator in the Spanish-English and French-English language pairs. He is an experienced trainer and presenter and organized the specialization conference thread at the Elia Together Conference for Freelancers and LSPs held in Athens and also co-founded the collaborative networking translation project Medico Legal Translations, www.medicolegaltranslations.com. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, delighted. Really looking forward to talking about pricing and negotiation. But first of all, as I always do, just if I could just ask you to tell us a little bit about your story, your background, how you got started in this uh, amazing industry. Where did where does it where did it all start for you, Jason? Mm, that's a great that's a great question, Paul. I mean, I, I first I've be, always been interested in money matters, so I think um, getting into the pricing and negotiation. Um, topics which uh, go hand in hand i think they're they're beautiful to to put together yeah, um, yeah i think is a is a great idea and i've just always been interested in, in money matters and self-betterment and how, how to improve yeah. myself so i think that's probably the main the main fantastic. reason behind it fantastic yeah. but tell us tell us a little bit about yourself as a as a translator mm. and tell us a little bit about your your sort of um your journey there yeah, thank you. So I've been um, a freelance translator now for ooh, 17 years, I think, uh, full time. And I tend to lean towards the medical field because I started mm-hmm. training as a, as a student doctor. I was a, a medic for quite a few years. Then I went into clinical research. Um, so I kind of feel comfortable around, around those fields. So I do research articles and uh, clinical trials, medical reports, that kind of thing. Um, and I've been, you know, weathering the pandemic, trying trying to survive like like most people, re- yep. rediscovering yep. ourselves, and uh, you know, doing a little bit of online training as well, which is um, you know a nice way to complement uh, the client work as well. And it's yeah, you know, it's, it's always wonderful to speak to colleagues and you know enjoy the conversations with you immensely. And I enjoy talking to other colleagues as well. So okay. um, that's basically how you know my my setup at the moment. Brilliant. Just on 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 medical translation, I've heard that it is to some degree recession proof. Is that is that true or, or not? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, is it recession proof? I I, cert- I think there's probably more tolerance to higher prices. 
more of a tolerance of no, higher no. prices. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can always you can always be be low on work, um, which is a which which is a problem. But I think um, I don't think anything is recession proof because even mm. clinical research in Spain is uh, is quite poorly funded, to be honest. You know, to be frank, Paul, um, yeah, we yeah. could do with a bit more funding. I think in in Spain yeah. and and getting things moving. I haven't seen a huge deluge of articles on COVID nineteen, which is surprising. I, I thought I would. Um, I've seen about two or three, possibly four articles. One, one on giving birth during COVID, and what's the, you know that's more obstetrics than than COVID nineteen. So I was a little surprised by that, Paul. Um, yeah, that may yeah. change. Maybe things, you know, the, the doctors in Spain have been just. Um, you know, aghast with this horrible virus, they they've been uh, swept off their feet. There's there's a lack of uh, energy, lack of funding, lack of will to to research. And I think all of those factors uh, come into play. Yes, yeah. Well, no, complicated times. I think that's, uh, that's you're you're thing telling can... me absolutely. Yeah, you, you, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Okay, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And uh, so, how, how how long have you been in? How long have you been in Spain for? So I've been living in Spain now for 22 years. I'm currently in discussions with an immigration lawyer down in Malaga about taking the Spanish passport. Um, okay, I, yeah. I want to time it in such a way that I get to renew my British one as well. Uh, officially, you're not, I have to say this hush-hush, but officially you're not supposed to have two passports from, from Britain and Spain, but unofficially people do it. Okay. Um, so I, I want to time it in such a way that I get the new passport. But yeah, I have permanent residency as a as a Brexiteer or, or, or an anti-Brexiteer that I am, uh, post-Brexit, obviously. And yeah. um, and I'm enjoying the Spanish um, expat life. You know, you, you can imagine that Spain is uh, a better diet, a better climate, very friendly people. And, uh, you know, as long as you have work and, uh, and a means to earn your living, I think you're actually you're actually fine here, Paul. It's a, it's a wonderful place to live. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. Well, let's talk about pricing and negotiation. I think this mm-hmm. is a really a really good topic, especially right now, as everyone is concerned about about prices. Absolutely. Um, how did you first get interested in that in that topic? Then pricing and negotiation and finance. <laughs> I suppose to be to be brutally honest with you, I was looking for topics to to talk about at conferences and, and workshops, and I felt that pricing and negotiation was a was a hot topic. Mm. I think the pricing um, in a constructive way. I'm, I don't like talking about pricing to groups. There's a there's a lot of moaning, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in online translator translator groups about pricing and how little we get paid. I think if you turn it turn the discussion around and make it constructive. You can have very interesting um, conversations and discuss techniques. And the other reason, Paul, is the fact that I haven't seen any university translation courses postgraduate level um, or even undergraduate level that uh, discuss these topics. So I, I feel there's a lot to yeah. be said in the yeah. industry, and that's why I, I talk about them. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, well, we're going to risk it because uh, because I know that talking about pricing is always a bit a bit sensitive. Um, it is, it say, is to say the least. So, but I think more than the actual the actual rate itself, I think we're we're all we're kind of aware of that discussion that's, that's been ongoing for many years. Um, let's talk a little bit about negotiation and 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 mm-hmm. and fixing a rate in in the first place. How do you? How do you come to an agreement with a client on a rate? And that may this may now um, differ if you're working with agencies, if you're working with direct clients. I don't know what your setup is there. So let's talk a bit, a little bit about that initial rate agreement. How does that mm. normally work for you? 
That's right, Paul. So I, I mean, I, I work for a mixed bag of, of agency clients and, and direct clients. I'm lucky to get that sort of stable bread and butter income from agencies, which I think is the the purpose of an agency and the direct clients will will hopefully pay pay more and be less sensitive to. So how do I, I negotiate? I'm very clear about what is negotiable uh, and what isn't. So I think the main thing that isn't is obviously the quality. You should never negotiate mm-hmm. the quality of your work. Mm-hmm. But yeah. of course, if you look at the uh, if you look at the triangle of uh, of negotiables, um, cost, time, and quality. This is sometimes known as the golden triangle: um, cost, time, and quality. Uh, so speed, quality, and price, depending on, on how yeah. you express yeah. it. Those are effectively you can negotiate the deadline, you can negotiate the unitary price, and I, I also like negotiating the payment uh, deadline pool. I, I think it's different being paid at thirty days or. Or even in advance. I mean, my, my clients who pay me in advance, <coughs> who, who pay me in advance, are immediately uh, given priority in front of those who who pay at you know thirty days or sixty days, um, or one hundred and twenty days, or, or one hundred and twenty days, which is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. typical in the the Spanish public administration. Um, I mean, a client in France the other day was having me believe he pays at forty five days at the end of the month but effectively it's 60 because you're billing at the end of the month and then he's not telling yeah. you to wait another 15 days so he's trying to sneak in that sort of um 45 days when it's truly you know it's actually 60 60 yeah. so yeah. um i just reminded him at the 40 what i thought was the 45 from the date of invoice and he said no there's there's no delay it's end of the month so we were we were sort of arguing about semantics there paul um, and it seemed a bit of a tactic on his part, on the client's part, to to stretch that financing out um, out an extra two weeks. Because as uh, you know, as my colleague Sarah Freitas says on her on her wonderful blog Les, Les Recettes du Traducteur, she says if you are charging at uh, getting paid at sixty or ninety days, you're effectively doing apart from the job of translator, you're financing the client as well. So um, totally. You know that's yeah. uh, that's a very interesting comment from from Sarah, which I picked up in one of her you know, one of her her blogs, and I think that's that's absolutely true. Totally, totally, yeah. Okay, so so how do you how do how does that initial negotiation normally go in terms of? Well, we've talked a, a little bit about um, payment terms, mm. but now let's focus on on price. So, and 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 again, maybe agencies and and direct clients if you choose to uh, approach them differently. So, I mean, agency, I, I feel that they tend to to give you a rate more than a direct client where you have more room for negotiation. Is that is that true or that's, not? That's certainly my experience, Paul. I think agencies are more price sensitive, which is which in a way is understandable because they have their overhead, they have their their bills to pay, their, their, their light and their, their electricity. They also have their payroll. So I think agency clients are are slightly um, more price sensitive. The advantage is that they they're bagging the client, so they're doing the the client capture work for us. So whenever yes. I do hear translators groaning about agency rates, I, I tend to say, well, look, they're doing a, a middleman job, which is essential, bagging the client. Because as we all know, those of us who look for direct clients, it's not easy to to mm. find clients. Mm. Um, so yes, the direct client can can pay more, slightly better conditions, and uh, it's nice to have a mixed bag. I mean, I I wouldn't like to to renounce or waive my my agency clients in in favor of because these direct clients are more um, more hit and miss, a bit more in, invariable, I think, uh, variable income, and you just don't know where you might end up, Paul. So it's nice to yeah, have yeah. Um, it's nice to have a mixed bag. Nice um, to have the balance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. And when and when you give a price for example to a direct client 
when you give a price to a direct client do you, and, and they come back and they want to negotiate. So, okay, well, let's, you know, let's talk about the price. Um, I've had various different experiences with this, obviously with people saying things like um, we have quotes from other, um, other providers who, mm. and they're offering a cheaper rate um, or, or they'll come back and say, we've only got this amount of budget, which is obviously less than the amount that you've, you've quoted or, yes. or any, any different way of a number of different ways of saying the same thing essentially, which is that they want to reduce the price. How do you, how do you deal with that? Do you negotiate or do you stand firm with your prices? Jason? So, so what you're describing there, Paul is obviously money, money down as I, as I call it, or downward price pressure. Most people call it downward price pressure. I, I call it money down just to be a little bit original and, and different. Um, yeah, it's difficult to, to deal with it. Essentially it depends on your position and how much work you have. If you have absolutely nothing on, and an empty inbox you want to fill, you may feel more amenable to to negotiating the the rate. If you are absolutely chock a block, and you know you're in a position of passing things on to colleagues or farming them out, that's a different kettle of fish. And you might you might just say, well, no, I don't. Uh, you know, I had a client the other day just ask me point blank for a discount as a returning customer, and he was actually returning um four or five months later so you know the idea of returning customer yes it's your second order but it was several months later so i did give him a very small discount but i i Mm. told a colleague and the colleague said well why didn't you just say i don't give discounts and stand your ground which is also a valid point um so i think it depends very much on your position paul it depends what what how much you know volume you have and uh, let's face it let's be brutally honest people do what they have to do paul if people have mortgages rent to pay food bills especially in a context of inflation that we're living now because of the the war and a couple of other economic uh, factors you know people are people have their you know, having to tighten their belts and reduce expenditure mm, and mm. um you know the income from operating expenditure from from operating income from work is uh, is vital and i think um you know we're in a we're in a very tricky time right now at which we need to be to be careful and you know navigate these waters quite um you know quite conscientiously Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a lot to this um, negotiation. I think it, I think there's a lot of uh, cultural issues or norms at play. So, in certain countries, it's very normal to have that um, toing and froing before a final price is agreed. In other, in other locations, it's it's not so common. So it's more often the case that the initial price is accepted or or, or rejected, and that's it. Um, that's true. I think I think um, you know that that plays into it. Definitely, one's personal situation. Definitely, the economy. All, all the all of those things. I think I think from my point of view, it, it makes sense for people to have kind of a their own their own pricing policy mm. where they are clear what they where you, where you as a translator are, are clear what you what you want what you will and what you won't accept so for example in my case i was always willing to negotiate but i would usually only negotiate once and only a certain percentage so Mm -hmm. the absolute like maximum would be 10 percent, a 10 percent discount off the original price um more normally it would have been less than that but once i'd given that offer of that initial discount i would never drop down again from there Right, so, I see. Mm. You know, and and that worked. Then that worked for me in the market that I was working in. So it really yes. depends. I, but I think it's important to have that policy because I think if you get into this sort of ongoing negotiation, or can I have a bit more of a discount? I think I think that's you know that's too much. And I think I think if you 
from my personal point of view, if you give more than a 10% discount, which is already quite a, quite a lot, I think most people are thinking, well, 10%, that's a lot. Absolutely. Um, but it obviously depends on the price that you, you quote up front. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think people do, you know, build, build a certain amount of that into their initial price. I think that's the reality of how a lot of people would manage it. So if they're expecting to negotiate a 10% discount with a, with a client, they might go down the route of saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to charge 5% more on the initial upfront price. And that's, you know, it's, uh, it all gets into the psychology of, 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 of what the actual original price is, right? That's absolutely um, true, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think most people do incorporate, you know, perhaps a leeway to, to drop by 10%. Um, but that you're absolutely right. I, what I asked people at the beginning of, uh, of the workshop on this topic is, um, you know, do you have a pricing strategy at all? You know, yeah. pricing can be quite daunting. And I, and I have a picture of, uh, I have a couple of pictures. One is Cary Grant being um, chased by a, a crop dusting plane in Northern California. Another one is the, the Edvard Munch painting, uh, the, the scream. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, just to illustrate the fact that this is actually quite a daunting topic um, and, and raises a lot of, um, you know, riles a lot of feathers. So um, I, I think the more busy you get, the stronger your position and the less you have to negotiate, I think. Uh, and the less busy you are, the more you have to negotiate. That's certainly true. Yes, yes. And I would just add on that last part that even if you don't have any work, I think you shouldn't be, you shouldn't negotiate too much because it can make you look like you don't have any work, which you don't. I, I agree with that. You look a bit like in need of the work. So I think that's where you mentioned the phrase earlier, stand your ground. And I think that's where it comes into to that, to sort of upholding your your value while you do get those jobs in. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a fine line, this, in, in, in terms of getting it right. Um, it, it is difficult, Paul. I think uh, one of the exercises I do in the workshop is uh, actually have a get people to think about how much money they'd like to make in a year and then just break that down into an hourly rate. Very, very easy. You know, break it down monthly, weekly, mm-hmm. daily. And instead of dividing the, the equation by five, I actually divide it by four because I like people to see that they need they need a bit of leeway, obviously, for free time. We're not we're not working 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, so they need time off. Uh, so I tend to divide it by four, which would be 48 free days in a year, so about six weeks really. Um, and you yeah. come to a figure in the end, which is quite useful. So below that figure, you can say, "Well, that's my, you know, that's my no way Jose rate. I'm not getting out of bed for less than that." Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I used to enjoy a program called Dragon's Den, which is an entrepreneurial program in, in the uk i think it's still being aired and one of the dragons was tuka Suleiman, the the owner of ryman's stationers and i believe a, a football club and he would say i don't get out of bed for one percent for one percent equity he doesn't work yeah so yeah, i kind of yeah. like that you know comparison so i don't get out of bed for x amount of yeah, money yeah i get it's nice to get people to think about what that no way jose you know the red uh, totally. I, you know, I have a traffic light of, um, you know, target rate, which is green and yeah, yeah. an amber rate, which is okay, but it could be green and a red rate, which is the no way Jose rate. So I think it's nice to get people to think about those, um, those things in those terms. And that Absolutely. helps the negotiating as well. Absolutely. And if you have that policy, uh, especially if you have it sort of written down and you know mm. what rates you're going to accept and how low you may be able to go and when you're just going to say no that that's not going to work then it makes life easier whereas if one if someone puts you on the spot and you don't have that clear you you it, it becomes stressful every time because you're thinking well you know should i offer a a five percent discount or should i accept that rate or should i 
counter offer or should it, you know, it, it, it's, it's each time becomes a separate case. Whereas if you have a, a policy, your own policy, then, and, and it's written down and it's clear, then you don't need to worry about individual clients because you just, when, when you're talking with an individual client, you, you just stick to your, stick to your policy and, and, and maybe you adjust that once every six months. That's that's true, Bill. Yeah, stick stick to your guns. And I think the more you're clear about what that that rate is, that billable rate, and how much you need, you know, how much you need to earn, how much you want to earn, are, are two different things. Incorporating retirement income or not, um, that's very useful. But so it's important never to reveal your bottom line. I have another slide which is never reveal your your BL or your bottom line. And yep. if you can get a handle on, a, and here I'll introduce a technical term in the, in the conversation on the BATNA. The BATNA is a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. If you could get a handle on the client's BATNA and where they're willing to sort of, you know, have a bit of argy-bargy and a bit of leeway, then that's very useful, I think, for our, for our negotiating and, and getting to our bottom line. So that's uh, that's another okay, technical sorry. term. Oh, sorry. I'm still trying to get the handle on the banner. Can you just explain that again, Jason? Please? Well, the ba- the banner is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So it's basically uh, the seller's alternatives to, you know, the seller's settlement range. There'll be a range of uh, a worst mm. case scenario and a desired price, and that's a range. That's not a fixed thing on the yeah, spectrum. Yeah. And then there's the buyer's settlement range, which also ranges from the buyer's desired price, which is obviously presumably higher, yeah, and the yeah, buyer's yeah. worst case scenario. So within those two ranges, there's what's called the the zopar or the zero the the zone of possible agreement, and that's where you can actually come to uh, come to an agreement. And actually, you know, that's the essence of negotiation, really. So the the graph is essentially just uh, two you know two ranges: the settlement range for the seller, the settlement yeah. range for the buyer, and the bit in between. Is the where they effectively overlap, like two circles overlapping. That's that's the Zopa. Okay, well, I think that's important to understand that 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 clients have their ranges as well, because I, yeah, we don't necessarily always think about that or consider that because sure. we're focused on our own ranges, right? Absolutely, yeah, um, but yeah, they're doing the same thing just in a in a different in a different way, and that's where the match then happens. That's absolutely true, Bill. And I, I teach uh, know yourself, know your client, and know your market. And I think knowing your client and getting a handle on, you know, you can't see negotiation just from your point of view as a seller. You need to see it from the buyer's point of view as well. You need yeah. to have a basic understanding of why the buyer is buying from you. Are you doing work they could do themselves? Are you indispensable and they, they can't do it? You, you need to have a few, you know, clues clued up about these things. And of course, knowing your market, you need to know what you you can't charge over and above what most other people are charging, unless you're you're very very clever. Um, you, you know, you can't charge sort of ten x mm-hmm. or yeah, you know, ridiculous um, upward pricing. So the, the, this is important, I think, and it's important uh, the psychology of money. One of the the people I follow online, Paul, uh, his name's Ramit Sethi. Uh, yes. I will teach you to be rich. One of the the reasons I like um, Ramit is that he combines the the self betterment, self improvement training, CPD with um, with the psychology of money. And I think if we all sort of improve our own psychology of money, especially towards the lower end of the spectrum, if as we get used to, you know, what money can buy us, and that there's too much, I think, in the translation industry of a of a sort of downward pressure towards the bottom. And if it becomes this downward pressure towards the bottom, essentially, Paul, it turns into a race to the bottom of the well. 
Yes. And eventually you reach yes. a situation where, where you're paying the client to give you work, which is the situation a lot of uh, a lot of um, trainees have in companies or as we might call them, becarios, precarios here in Spain, you know, yeah. trainees yeah. in a very precarious, yeah. um, low wage situation. So I, I do think this is very important. And I think it's uh, it's something I emphasize when I when I'm teaching and when I'm giving these uh, giving these courses. No, oh, good stuff, Jason. Yeah, you've certainly got me thinking quite a few things. So I'm thinking if I look back, there's definitely jobs that I, I will have done for what I consider to be a, a low rate. So sort mm-hmm. of the absolute minimum. And there's other jobs that I think, well, that's yeah, it's a very good rate, a rate that I'm very happy with. But now I'm also thinking that all of those jobs, you know, right throughout my career that I did, the, the client is also having this opinion of, of, of the rate as well. So there will be a number of clients who um, thought they got a really good rate with me. Yes. <laughs> that they would have been prepared to pay more. And at the same time, there will be other clients, presumably, that I kind of pushed to a limit where I was actually working for the maximum price that they were prepared to pay. So they felt they were paying the maximum price. So it's, it's interesting to think of it from the client's point of view as well. I think that... That that's interesting but you the... you've got me thinking about two two graphs i have in my head i, I once saw a graph for amazon of uh, wtp which is willingness to pay and it was something to do with subscribers and how much they would be willing to pay and of course the more people learn it was an it was a graph i think plotted against wtp against income so obviously the higher incomes mm-hmm. were willing to pay more and the other thing you got me thinking about was um was the age demographics and of course markets are are break, broken down into into that demographics geographics uh, behavioral and uh, all 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 the rest of it you you got me thinking of how we as experienced uh, translators we can effectively or hope to charge more or aspire to charge more and eventually wages plateau and this is true i think in uh, in the corporate setting for employees um as we get older we would like to charge more and that's something um you know that's something i think we need to to think of as well uh, as freelancers it's nice to get this hourly rate and so sort of the, the green target rate is how much we would expect to get if we run on um, a fixed annual salary i think that's how i how i tend to yeah, pitch this yeah yeah um and get the comparison of were we working for somebody else um, this is what I would would expect to be, and of course, in the freelance yeah. market, it, it's usually a higher annual rate. You you take a lower rate when you work for somebody else, as in exchange for for more stable income. Totally, so there's, there's totally. that there's that trade off as well. Yeah, you know, life's full of trade offs. Yeah, and I like I like all of these sort of anchors as well that you that you have in your mind, and that helps you, I think, to get a better deal, and it also helps you to know when you're pushing it too far, not to get into that stressful situation. So I think all of these all of these having these numbers in your head and having these as a guide is definitely going to help people that's all part of the psychology of Manipal. i think um you know one one thing i also teach is just to to quieten down and speak less listen more uh let the other person speak and and you get an idea of you know what their needs are and and, you know the less information sometimes you give the better when you're in a negotiation but uh essentially paul a a negotiation is a win-win situation between the buyer and the seller it's not an arm wrestle. It's not a one way. Mm. I, I have a picture of a perfectly balanced stone on a on a pinnacle, and that that sort of sums it up very visually. What negotiation is, um, it shouldn't be seen as a sort of um, you know twisting the other person's arm into yeah. getting, getting what we want. If they're not getting what they want, that there is no negotiation. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff, Jason. Well, there's something else I'd like to ask you about now. 
because I think you have uh, I think you have a, a different take on this or some insight on this. Um, but but typically my strategy was always to to not raise rates for clients. Although I did have um, with direct clients, I would have a, um, a sort of inflation adjustment priced into the, the contract, so that if I worked for them for a number of years, I was able to make that inflationary. Uh, increase, which is uh, quite important nowadays, of course. And, yes. um, but, but in terms of raising rates, raising the sort of nominal rates, I generally speaking, I, I wouldn't say never, but I would say I rarely did that with existing clients. I would do that with new clients. So as more work came in, as I felt the value of what I was offering was was increasing, either because of market conditions or because what I was offering, then then those rates would those rates would go up over time for mm. new clients. But the existing clients essentially kept the same rate, sometimes with an inflation adjustment, and that went on for for a number of years. Now, yes. what's what what would you suggest to people? Do you think it is possible to raise rates for existing clients without scaring them off? That that's a fantastic question, but I think uh, what I would say to people is, don't be a cable company. Don't be a cable company means you don't offer, you don't give the best rates to the newest customers because cable companies, I think, I'm sure we've all had this experience where a company will poach clients off another company by offering a better deal and then you move over and then after X number of years, they will the prices will creep up. Uh, and I see this all the time because I, I haggle my my utilities. Um, I tend to do this annually and just have a usual, you know, this is all tracked and, uh, and I, I keep track of these things. So... You certainly can raise rates with current clients. I mean, why why wouldn't we want to give uh, our current clients the best experience um, of working with us? So I think that's that's part of it. But um, in terms of getting upside from the current clients, I, I think it also depends on the percentage of revenue they're providing. So you need to have a, again the um, the, uh, the the Pareto principle of eighty twenty. I was listening to a brilliant. Um, podcast the other day with uh, somebody called James Schranko, who's an Australian entrepreneur, yeah. um, very specialized in taking six-figure businesses to seven-figure businesses. And he was talking about the four, the 64-4 rule, where 4% of the inputs is responsible for 64% of the outputs. So it's actually just discarding every sort of um, extra you know, extraordinary uh, task. He doesn't have to-do list. And, and I, I was very um, struck by what he said in that podcast. And I, I must go back in again and, and revise it. But um, essentially, absolutely, you can raise uh, your current current rates. It, it is difficult to see which clients, you know, where the upside potential is. But I I mean, I have a, I have a practical anecdote of two client uh, raises. I just, you know, because of uh, inflation, um, we we could argue whether or not inflation is a good argument for raising rates. I I think it is. You know, we're all spending more money. Our purchasing power will decrease, yeah. and we'll yeah. we'll have a worse. You know, if we don't do it, we'll we'll effectively we're we're working longer hours for for the same amount of money, and that's effectively what what we don't want to be doing. Um, so I think um, in in the one case when I when I rose uh, when I increased a client's rate, I was rewarded with an order the next day. I think. Um, which, which is an unusual way of pinging a client saying, you know, do you have any work? It was a rate increase, but that, that's literally what happened. Um, she didn't bat an eyelid. She didn't question the rate. Um, it was a full cent rise. 
on the translated yeah. word. Yeah. So, so I think you know that's uh, when you're dealing with with rates in double digits, 10, 10, 11, 12, That that is quite a rise. You know, when you're putting ten to eleven, that's a ten percent rise, uh-huh. um, yeah. which yeah. is at the moment at the level of inflation, at least in Spain or possibly in your your area as well in Colombia. Um, but normally inflation doesn't go up to double double digits. We're seeing a very unusual um, economic climate now, Paul. Yes, it is totally different right now. There, there are very different um, inf- inflation numbers that are going to be coming out in the next, you know, in the months ahead and well already. So, so yeah, I think people need to, need to sort of build that in. Um, I mean, do you, th- do, have you had clients that have been, um, that have sort of said no way when you've approached them about raising a, raising a rate? I haven't actually. I, I I've never had a client come back to me and say, "Well, if you you know you can do that, but you won't get many much work from us," which is effectively a entering into negotiation because they're inviting you to say, "Well, actually, I'll I'll keep the the the, the rate the same," and that that is a bit of a a bit of an upward downward pull. Um, but I haven't honestly had had clients come back to me and say, "Which which I I consider myself very lucky because that's something that can conceivably happen." So I say, I suppose I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, as I say, I work in a, in a field which there is slightly more tolerance to higher prices. Um, yes, yes. So that's that's very. You know, that's so once very you've true. shown your once you've shown your value as well, then they're going to be more open to listening to to that rate increase. I would imagine exactly, and I think that's a very key point, Paul. It's taking the conversation away from the price and not being obsessed about the unitary price and making it about the value. And discussing what you know exactly what what your your sort of position is in the in the client's um, in the client's food chain and what exactly what value are you actually providing? So I, I also teach, yeah, you know, I have a slide of a, a a pair of scales with price and value, and I I always try to get people to take away, take the conversation, make it less about the value and more about the uh, the value we're actually providing to our clients. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff, Jason. Well, we're very happy, of course, that you've uh, decided to uh, elaborate on a lot of uh, a lot of the things we talked about today in your workshop on the 2nd of June. It's called How to Confidently Price Your Services and Negotiate Like a Pro. Tell us a little bit about your workshop, Jason, please. So basically, uh, no, thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to to be here and talk about these topics. Um, the workshop is, uh, as you said, how to confidently price your services and negotiate like a pro. Um, I'm basically interested in in getting people to, I suppose the three main takeaways from the, the pricing one is to feel more confident with your pricing. Um, it's to enhance people's understanding of upward and downward price pressure or, or money up and money down as I as I more colloquially mm-hmm, refer mm-hmm. to it and then how to raise your prices without scaring off clients I think a lot of us Paul are just afraid of, of raising our prices just in case we lose the work and that's again getting back to the psychological um, points um, that I've that I've tried to introduce into the into the conversation um, and then on the negotiating side I'm, I'm looking to to helping people understand what negotiation is or what it's not or what can be negotiated and, and what can't be negotiated. Um, so learn the key negotiables in, in our industry, the, the T&I market, and then just hopefully achieve more profitable and confident client negotiation. Well, that's, that's my ultimate aim. If I achieve half of those aims, I think I'll, I'll feel very happy indeed. Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. Well, really, really looking forward to that. So that's on the 2nd of June. Check out training dot 
trainingpros.com. That's training.pros.com. You can see all of the all of the details there, all of the information. Please let me know if you have uh, any questions at all. So, so yeah, really looking forward to that, Jason. And a big thank you for coming on the show today and talking about these topics. I think that it's really, really good to be able to talk them through and, and, and get those insights. So thanks a lot for that. That's my pleasure. Paul. Always a pleasure. And thank you for having me. Brilliant. Brilliant. All the best, Jason. Take care. All the best, Paul. Cheerio. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.